0: Good morning. It is so good to be with you, Risen Hope Church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Um, And while you're turning there, let me um, bring greetings and love from your brothers and sisters at Covenant Fellowship. We do love you. We pray for you. um, And we have been rejoicing with you, although this is my first chance to rejoice with you in this beautiful house that the Lord has provided for you. Um, Such a, such a blessing to hear how the Lord is, is prospering the ministry of this church. And even as I've I've heard yesterday about how uh, the Lord's already giving you favor in the local community here as you have uh, begun to establish yourselves in your new neighborhood. So we love you. We rejoice with you. And Uh, It's good for me to be with you as well and see so many familiar faces. I'm also uh, looking forward to introducing uh, the ministry of Covenant Mercies to those of you who don't have the Covenant Fellowship background, and this will all be new to you this morning. We'll do that on the other side of our sermon this morning, but I always love to begin in God's Word and remind ourselves, even though the things we're giving ourselves to in Covenant Mercies would uh, receive favor in the world even. Uh, We have very specific and very uh, important motivation from the Word of God. So if you're with me in Luke chapter 10, I want to begin reading in verse 25, the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, him being Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Now if we were to ask Jesus to describe in a single word what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, how do you think he would answer? There may be a a number of ways that he could answer, and we don't know the answer for sure because it's not recorded in Scripture anyway if he was ever asked that question quite so directly. But if we were going to give an answer based on our text for this morning, we might guess that if Jesus was asked, how would you describe love for neighbor in a single word, he might choose the word compassion. But a Samaritan, verse 33, came to him, and as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." Now, I want to suggest to you that when it comes to compassion, we're a little bit like babies. We're a little bit like infants. You're thinking, oh, this is great. You bring a guest speaker in, and immediately he calls us a bunch of babies. I said, we. I'm including myself in that. We are very much like infants when it comes to compassion. Uh, And this is what I mean. Um, I happen to be in a phase of life, by the way, grandparenthood. Um, the reason my lovely wife, Rachel, is not with me today is that this very day we're expecting our third grandchild, and uh, amen, thank you, thank you. I didn't, well, whatever I did was a long time ago, um, but thank you. <laughs> um, we're expecting our, our third grandchild, and uh, this, is, uh, this, this reintroduces me into a world that I just love, child development. It, I remember being so fascinated by this as a father, and now I'm fascinated all over again at the way these little ones just soak in the world and learn new things so rapidly. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever played a game with a little, say six-month-old baby, six to nine-month-old infant. You hold a, a very attractive toy in front of them, maybe it makes some noise and it really gets their attention, so they lock in on that toy and then you hide it by behind your back. Now, a six-month-old child typically will just, you can picture them, you know, they just kind of like bobble their head around. They just look for the next thing to attract their attention, right? A nine-month-old or maybe a child between nine and 12 months will more likely begin looking for that toy. They may even crawl around behind your back to get it if they were really attracted by it. And that's because a child somewhere in in the age of six to nine months typically develops what child uh, development specialists call object permanence. Object permanence is simply the knowledge, the understanding that something, objects, continue to exist even when they are outside our field of vision. Prior to object permanence, it really is quite literally out of sight, out of mind for that little one. Well, we are so much like infants who haven't yet developed object permanence when it comes to Compassion. When something, when some concern is outside of our immediate vision, outside of our immediate experience, it's very easy for us to just go on and move on to other things as if it doesn't even exist. This is where Gary Hogan, in his excellent book that I highly recommend, Good News About Injustice, uh, really serves us. He coined a phrase in there called compassion permanence, based on this idea of object permanence. Uh, he defines compassion permanence like this, a courageous and generous capacity to remember the needs of an unjust world, even when they're out of our immediate sight. My contention from the Word of God this morning is that we must develop object permanence for the orphans of the world who are very frequently outside our field of vision, outside our everyday experience in our affluent society but whose cause the Lord has called us to take up as his disciples. And as we develop object permanence, we also, I'm sorry, compassion permanence, we, we also must accurately define what compassion is from God's word, uh, you've probably noticed compassion is a fashionable thing, right? Everyone, none, most people would not want to think of themselves as uncompassionate. Most people would like to think of themselves as compassionate, and even in the world, this is something that receives favor. Everyone wants to be viewed as compassionate, but the the definition of this word is really up for grabs in our world today. It's all the more reason for us to ask the question: What does the Bible say about this? How does the Bible define compassion? How does Jesus define compassion? And this is an especially important question for us, not simply because Jesus is our great moral teacher and he's bound to have some words of wisdom for us on this, but much more fundamentally because Jesus is himself the very definition of compassion. His life and ministry, leaving behind the glory of heaven to seek and save lost sinners like you and me in a sin-cursed world, giving His life on a cross so that sinners can find forgiveness. This is the very essence of biblical compassion. This is the embodiment of biblical compassion. See, Jesus isn't just our great moral teacher here. Jesus is exhibit A in the compassion of God. If you're here today and you are not a Christian or maybe you're tuning in by live stream and you, you have not given your life to Christ, maybe you're considering the claims of Christ on your life and you're, you're deciding what is it that you really believe. I want you to hear loud and clear from me as we begin. You are not about to hear a moral lesson on what it looks like to obey God's rules so that you can receive His favor. Your only hope For acceptance before God is through faith in His Son. Belief, a rock-solid belief that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are sufficient to cover the penalty for your sins and restore your relationship to God. But, that being very important and very true, for those of us who are already in a position of faith, we also must recognize the story does not end there. As the body of Christ, saved by His great act of compassion toward us, we are now called to embody His compassion to a lost and dying world. We're called to make disciples... Not only making disciples through evangelism, which of course we are, and that's a primary mission of the church, to proclaim the truth of God's Word and see uh, non-believers turned into disciples, but we are also called to make disciples of one another, to make disciples of ourselves through the way we live our lives. Uh, To love not only in word, but in deed and in truth. Uh, To do good to all, especially the household of faith. And we're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds so that we all grow up in every way into Him who is our head, Jesus Christ. So, as Jesus defines biblical compassion for us this morning through the Word, let's remember uh, that He is defining for us that which He has already lived toward us and embodied toward us through His life and His ministry. And He's defining what we are there for, Called to grow up into as his disciples, to mature into and to personify as the body of Christ in our world. Now, Let's, with that as our background, let's catch up on the background of our story as well in Luke chapter 10. Uh, It's important, especially, I think, because most of us are so familiar with this parable, right? We've been hearing, uh, most people, even if we're new Christians, we may have known the parable of the Good Samaritan from childhood. It's important to remind ourselves of the background so we don't miss some of the the truth that Jesus is, is looking to bring to us here. So let's just briefly review the background. An expert in the law, has confronted Jesus, and we're told, Luke tells us, that he is looking to uh, test, to put Jesus to the test. If you've read through the Gospels already, you know this is a bad idea. This guy's already set himself up for disaster because typically Jesus, you want to test me? He, He quickly turns the tables on them, and soon they find that they are the ones on the examination table, and that's exactly what happens in our story here. Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer Lawyer wants to put him to the test. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, why are you asking me? You're the lawyer. You tell me. You you know the law of God. How do you read the law? What does it say? The man answers astutely. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms his answer, and it shouldn't be any surprise to us if if we know our New Testament that Jesus affirms this answer, because in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a similar question. What is the greatest of all the commandments? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets depend, is what Jesus said. That's, an asto- that's, a, that's a message for another day, but that's an astonishing statement when you think about it. The law and the prophets, so much of the Bible that we hold in our hands today hangs on this dual command to love God and love neighbor. I know it's part of your mission statement as a church as well. Neighbor love is, is part of that. One of the primary ways that we demonstrate our love for God is through our love for our neighbors, just as we love ourselves. And so, Jesus affirms this lawyer's answer. And immediately, I I kind of like to to imagine a a little bit of a Deuteronomic tone in Jesus' voice as he answers him. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Kind of has an Old Testament ring to it. Um, immediately, this lawyer begins to feel some dissonance in his soul, apparently, because he'd like to believe that he's loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he can't quite get away from this neighbor thing. And so, like any good lawyer would do, and this is a little bit of a lawyer joke, but if, if I was accused of something, I would want a lawyer who tries to narrow the, the, the implications of the law. So immediately, this lawyer begins trying to narrow the implications of God's law on his life. Well, maybe, maybe if I can define my neighbor as only my family or only my ethnic group or only my, my national group or my geographical region, maybe then I can claim that I have loved my neighbor just as I love myself. And so it's in a spirit of self-justification Luke tells us that he asked the question, and who is my neighbor? Well, this is the moment that Jesus has been waiting for because uh, this really gives him the platform to define the neighborhood, if you will, about as broadly as it can possibly be defined. The, The neighbor that we are called to love is essentially whomever the Lord brings across our path. And in the process, he also defines for us what love for neighbor looks like. And he defines it in a way that spotlights compassion as a central feature of this love. So in the balance of our time in the Word, uh, before we turn the corner and I'll update you on the ministry of covenant mercies, uh, I just want to look at three characteristics of biblical compassion that are displayed for us in this parable. Remembering all the while that what Jesus is doing here is painting a portrait for us of what neighbor love looks like. So the first characteristic of biblical compassion is that it is active. Biblical compassion is active. Now, we often speak in, in terms of, of feeling uh, compassion, as if it's an emotion or, or being uh, or having compassion, as if it's an objective thing that we can you know, make sure we put in our pocket and we don't leave home without it. Um, there's nothing wrong with speaking about it in those terms. That's just the way we, we uh, speak in our vernacular. But if we're not careful, it can give us a wrong impression of what biblical compassion actually is. So compassion is not something that we merely feel compassion is something we do. Uh, One way I like to say it is that compassion is a verb. Um, In in biblical terms, compassion is a verb. Now, the biblical concept can rightly be thought of as an emotion, and we should think of it as an emotion, but it's a deep, guttural emotion that must result in action… Uh, in many ways, we, would, we can liken it to love, right? I, I'm the father of three daughters, and as these young men started coming to me and expressing their interest in my daughters, I wanted to know that they loved them, but I wanted to know more than just, oh, you have a flutter in your heart when my daughter is around you. I wanted to see some action associated with that love, right? We're very accustomed to this in, in the category of love. Uh, we might say that, Love that has heart flutters without action is more like infatuation, but true love will have action associated with it. Well, we can say the same about compassion. It's not the same thing as empathy. Uh, empathy is a good thing. Uh, I, I encourage, you know, all of us should be, be trying to be more empathic people, but empathy really does remain in the category of the emotions biblical compassion moves us beyond empathy to doing something. It is a verb. Um, And a closer look at the parable of the Good Samaritan will demonstrate this for us. If you look in verse 34, after this Samaritan encounters the man and he's said to have compassion on him, we have a list of things that his compassion led him to do. Uh, He comes over to him, Uh, he, He crosses over the road toward the man in contrast to the others who crossed over on the other side. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to a local inn and cares for him there personally, and then he pays for that care out of his own pocket as he leaves. See, compassion, as biblically defined, always has specific action associated with it compassion is a verb. Uh, and the beauty of that phrase, compassion is a verb, is that it's actually true. Um, <laughs> so it's not just a clever way to make a point, it's actually true. The, the word that we translate compassion in our English New Testament is a verb in the Greek New Testament, uh, and it's a very easy verb to do a word study on. It appears only 12 times uh, in the New Testament, Listen, there's some really interesting insights that come from just looking at these 12 occurrences. Three of them, um, th- three times this, this word occurs in the New Testament, come out of Jesus' mouth as he tells a parable, one of them being the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, one time is when a blind man is crying out to Jesus on the road, Son of David, have compassion on me, have mercy on me. All of the other eight times that this word appears in the New Testament are in the Gospels and they are all in reference to the activities of Jesus. Now that, that in itself is instructive for us. When this word is used, it is most often used to describe what Jesus is doing. But this is the one thing I want you to remember and, and take this home and, and meditate on it. Uh, every time, every time, Jesus is said to have compassion or feel compassion or be filled with compassion or moved with compassion. That statement is immediately followed by some kind of merciful action on the part of the Lord. I'm going to give you a few of these that you can jot down. You can take them home and, and, uh, and, and meditate on them this week. Um, Matthew 14, 14. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 20 Fourteen. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Mark one forty one. Moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and healed a leper. Uh, Mark sixty. Mark six thirty four is, is perhaps my favorite one to meditate on because Jesus is, uh, Jesus is going out to get some rest with his disciples. This one needs a little bit of background. He and his disciples have been ministering all day long. They're exhausted. Do you remember this? Uh, and they're, they're going to get on the boat and go over to the other side of the lake to get some rest. Now remember, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. He feels the effect of fatigue just like we do. He feels the temptation. He's tempted in every way just as we are. He is tempted as I would be to say, these people, don't they understand we need some rest? How inconsiderate can they be? But what happens is this crowd follows them all the way to the other side of the lake, and as they're late… boat arrives on the other side, they find that this crowd is waiting there for them. Now, what would I be tempted to do? I'd be tempted to go right back to the middle of the lake, drop anchor, and get that rest that we are after, that we desperately need. But Jesus, the Scripture says Jesus, was moved with compassion. He felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And this is where he taught them and also fed the 5,000, recognizing their need for food as well. Uh, Luke 7.13 is another one. Uh, Jesus has compassion on a grieving widow and he raises her son from the dead. Without exception, where Jesus is said to have compassion on people, that statement is coupled with some kind of merciful action like healing or Uh, raising the dead, or casting out demons, or feeding hungry people, or teaching lost sheep. See, Jesus doesn't merely feel compassion for people. He does something to alleviate their suffering. Jesus' compassion, biblical compassion, is always associated with merciful action. Biblical compassion is active. Well, secondly, biblical compassion is costly it's costly. Now, Jesus spins this story out of his imagination. Um, The the account of the the Good Samaritan isn't something that actually happened, but we need to put ourselves into the minds of his original hearers to understand what the impact of this would have been. Uh, a, A person at that time traveling on the road probably would have had to tear his own clothing to bind up this stranger's wounds that he finds on the side of the road. He pours oil and wine onto the wounds. Oil would be for soothing the pain, wine for disinfecting the wounds. This means he probably deprived himself of refreshment later in his journey. The the oil and wine wasn't brought to dress a stranger's wound. He brought those uh, items with him in order to refresh himself later in his journey. But it was more important to him that this stranger's wounds be dressed loading this man onto his own animal probably means that he walks for the remainder of this journey. He takes him to an inn where he cares for him personally out of his own pocket, and he foots the bill for three weeks room and board. That's how much the two denarii would have have, uh, paid for for this man. Uh, and not only that, but he states emphatically to the innkeeper that, hey, I'm not looking for you to carry it from here. I'm not looking for the neighborhood association to pick it up from here. No, I will come back, and whatever additional expenses you incur, I will be the one to pay those. This really raises questions for me. This, I think this should raise questions for us. Are we willing to give out of the abundance that God has given us. Abundance not only in money and possessions, but even in our time, even in uh, the gifts that God has given us. Are we willing to give generously of those things in order to to, uh, be compassionate disciples of Christ who love our neighbors as ourselves? And are we willing to take risks? See, there are costs we can count, and I, you know, when it comes to financial generosity, I, I, uh, I, I commend the idea of, of planned giving. So you're looking at your budget, and you're being as generous you can as you can within uh, your budget and the allotment of funds that God has given you. Um, it's 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 good to count the costs in that way. But there are also uh, sometimes costs that we must be ready to pay, risks that we must take for unanticipated costs that might be incurred as a part of being Jesus' disciple. Uh, this, This road from Jerusalem to Jericho had a reputation for being extremely dangerous. It was about 17 miles in length, winding through the desert, lots of rocks and caves and uh, places for robbers to hide out and lie in wait. All of Jesus' original hearers would have understood, all right, this is the bad part of town. So imagine the, 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 the place in the city that you would avoid in the middle of the night because you just know it's not safe. That is what uh, this, this idea of the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho would have evoked. And think about it. This man is carrying costly items. He's carrying oil and wine. He's carrying enough money in his pocket to cover three weeks rent at the local inn for, his, uh, for the stranger that he's encountered. He has just found a man beaten and obviously robbed on the side of the road. Most of us would say, you're foolish for stopping. Keep on moving, man. Don't, don't stop there. Obviously, robbers are about. And Jesus, has, Jesus has crafted this story as a way of showing us what love for neighbor looks like. And he gives us this character in the Samaritan whose compassion is not stifled by the requirement that he put himself in a precarious position. Now, this can be a hard pill for us as American Christians to swallow, I think. And, and uh, John Piper has, has served us well with a, a, a rather lengthy quote that, I will, uh, that I'll, I'll read to you on this topic. Um, Dr. Piper says, There's a mindset in the prosperous West that we deserve a pain-free, trouble-free existence. When life deals us the opposite, we have a right not only to blame somebody or some system and to feel sorry for ourselves, but also to devote most of our time to coping so that we have no time or energy left for serving others. This mindset gives a trajectory to life that is almost universal, namely away from stress and toward comfort and safety and relief. Then within that very natural trajectory, Some people begin to think of ministry and find ways of serving God inside the boundaries set by the aims of self-protection. And it never occurs to anyone that choosing discomfort, stress, and danger may be the right thing, even the normal biblical thing, to do. I found myself in conversation with Christians, Dr. Piper continues, uh, for whom it is simply a given that you do not put yourself or your family at risk. The commitment to safety and comfort is an unquestioned absolute. And, And let me just say, may it never be an unquestioned absolute among us. Being a Christian, he concludes, should mean that our trajectory is toward need regardless of danger or discomfort and stress. In other words, Christians characteristically will make life choices that involve putting themselves and their families at temporal risk while enjoying eternal security. Now, I hope you're challenged by that quote like I am what what comes up in me is 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 the immediate need to qualify. Well, wait a minute, you're not saying we should just throw ourselves intentionally into martyrdom, are you, and just just uh, you know uh, uh, recklessly throw ourselves out there. What about my responsibilities as a father to care for my own children? Obviously, uh, we can qualify that in a thousand ways, but I fear sometimes that those qualifications can, can uh, make that challenge uh, die the death of a thousand qualifications, if you know what I mean. Uh, we need to let that challenge sit with us and, and recognize that our willingness To embrace cost and risk is the very thing that separates us from the world. It should set us apart from the world in this uh, this area of of embracing cost and biblical compassion. Everyone wants to buy the bracelet. Everyone wants to share the video on social media, Uh, engage in ways of feeling compassionate uh, that really have no cost associated with them. And by the way, I'm not against buying the bracelet. I'm not against sharing the video. Well, I don't know. It depends what the video is. But um, I'm not against those things. Those are not inherently bad things. Uh, What I'm saying is that Jesus is calling us to something much higher than that here. He wants us to, to see the glory and embrace the joy of compassionate love for neighbor that really cannot be embraced apart from faith. See, Jesus is is calling us to a love and a compassion that can only be done by someone who is not seeking after the things of this world, but rather is seeking first the kingdom of God. He's calling us to embrace costs like the Macedonian Christians. You remember the Macedonian Christians who are commended to us by Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? They gave out of their own deep poverty, and in so doing, they joined With their Savior, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we by his poverty might become rich. See, this is the essence of Christian generosity, and Jesus is lifting our eyes to it here in this parable. Biblical compassion is costly, and sometimes it embraces risk that would seem foolish apart from faith. Well, thirdly and finally, biblical compassion is required. It's required. Uh, Jesus concludes in verse 37 with these words, you go and do likewise. See, the disciple of Jesus has no opt-out clause when it comes to biblical compassion. It's not as if, okay, that's for the people who have the gift of mercy. No, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. When it seems too hard to take action on behalf of that unknown half-dead man on the side of the road, the risks just seem too great to embrace, let's remind ourselves that this is the portrait that Jesus has painted for us to show us what love for neighbor looks like. And along the bottom of that portrait, he has written the words, you go and do likewise. When you're tempted, when we are tempted to, to think that, well, that's great, but I'm not encountering people, half-dead robbed people on the side of the road every day. That's really not the world that I live in. The Lord would remind us that is the world that we live in. And we're not to cloister ourselves away from the pain and suffering of this world. We're not to pursue safety and comfort and relief to such a degree that we're unwilling to take up our cross and embrace cost and risk for the sake of the kingdom. Um, See, this, again, I think this is where uh, we can get tripped up as American Christians more than anything. We wouldn't overtly refuse Jesus' calling to be compassionate toward suffering people. But because we live in such an affluent society, because affluence is the norm, and because... uh, Safety and comfort are the fruits that tend to accompany that affluence. We can very easily live our lives in such a way that we are unaware of a world groaning under the curse of sin and disease and fatherlessness, simply because the normal course of our lives doesn't take us down those paths. See, we don't step outside of our homes every morning and see orphan children scrabbling through the the trash dump just trying to find a scrap of food to eat. But this is where we, we need to come back around to that idea of compassion permanence. The Lord would remind us this morning that that is the world that we live in, whether it's part of our daily experience or not. And... It's a part of our calling as His disciples, our joyful calling, to go and do likewise, to take initiative toward that need and to cross over to the other side of the road and express the the love of Christ to those who are lost and suffering in this world. We are living in a world that is populated by more than a hundred million orphans. And through covenant mercies, uh, I am grateful to God that we have been attempting to go and do likewise in partnership with the body of Christ uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, We found much joy in this task of of building partnerships with God's people abroad, building partnerships with indigenous local churches in areas of intense need, uh, areas where many of those pastors and leaders and, and members of those churches do step out of their homes every morning and see fatherless children in their community essentially fending themselves. And so what we've been able to do through Covenant Mercies is uh, build an infrastructure to partner with them in this work so that as uh, we build teams within those local churches that we work with and we uh, go out into the community to care for fatherless children living in the context of their extended families. I'm going to… Oh, thanks, Dave. By the way, can I say thanks to Dave and Kimberly for making this happen this morning? You would… You'll, you'll be much happier with a little bit of video and slide content than just listening to me drone on for the next 15 minutes. Um, but I, I am uh, thrilled to bring you an update and to introduce the ministry of Covenant Mercies. The centerpiece of our ministry is, is uh, what we call our Orphan Sponsorship Program. And through that program, we're able to provide care for over 1,500 fatherless children now living in, uh, in the local communities of the, the indigenous church partners that we work with. Uh, these church partners are in Uganda, Ethiopia, and Zambia right now. Uh, and most of the children live within the context of their extended family. Sometimes the mother is still alive. Uh, so for the purposes of our program, we've defined an orphan as a fatherless child. And uh, sometimes the mother's still alive. Many times grandparents, aunts and uncles have taken the children in. And then the local churches that we work with are able to go and provide some basic, basic nutritional, medical, and educational support to that family as they care for the father of those children uh, they have taken in. It is an exciting time for us in our ministry right now. Um, we are… Uh, about 19 years old as a ministry. And so uh, many of the children that we began with are starting to graduate from our program now and take their place in society as young adults, many times young adults who are, have devoted their lives uh, to Christ. And so through 19 years of, of ministry in sub-Saharan Africa and 15 years now of Good Fruit through our partnership with Will Broad and Ziki Chanda uh, in Zambia... Actually, let me pause right here because this is a church that knows and loves Will and Zicky very well. Wilbroad has preached in this pulpit, and uh, sadly, we lost Wilbroad in January of this year. Many of you have heard, many of you have been asked me about how Zicky's doing. You've been praying for her. Thank you for those prayers. Thank you for your love for this dear family. Uh, they're doing well. They're, they're clinging to faith. It's obviously been a very difficult year um, And uh, Ziki is the director of Lighthouse Christian School, and uh, that uh, Covenant Mercy's partners with. And she has been happy to be able to to throw herself into that work uh, during this difficult year. I'll I'll have a little bit more to say uh, later. But thank you for your prayers for Will and Ziki. Um, It was really through our partnership with the Chandas that we came to understand in a greater way how important education is in the lives of the children we're serving. and So Will and Zicky had established Lighthouse Christian School 15 years ago. Covenant Mercies came alongside them to begin partnering with them and sponsoring children to go to to the school and eventually begin building the campus that now serves uh, more than 300 sponsored kids who are going to the school there. Um, But it was through Will and Zicky's uh, help that we came to understand that effectively breaking cycles of poverty in our children's lives uh, requires a significant and intentional and many times very direct investment into their education. Uh, and so I'll, I'll come back to Zambia later, but that is why a few years ago we began, uh, we broke ground on a new school in Western Uganda, or uh, in Kibura, Western Uganda. Uh, you are looking at the team on Groundbreaking Day there. The man on the far right with the big smile on his face is Moses Nkwatsibwe. He's a, the partner of our pastor church there. And uh, We were able to uh, spend, this this groundbreaking day was after spending most of 2019 or 2018 uh, working with a team of engineers there to develop a, a comprehensive site plan uh, that, Lord willing, we will implement in, in the next several years and build this school campus out. Uh, you'll see in a minute that we've, we've built a number of those buildings already. Um, thanks to a small arny, army of uh, donors and financial partners who've joined with us in this mission, uh, I'm thrilled to tell you that in early February 2020, last year, uh, we opened, we had the joy of opening Hope Community Primary School for about 90 students in grades pre-K through grade one and, um, and beginning the, the, uh, the effort to give them a quality Christian education in the years to come. Now. Uh, our, our hope is, our prayer is that uh, as the Ugandan government lets us have kids back in school again, uh, we'll continue adding one new grade each year so that by uh, 2026, Lord willing, we'll be able to serve several hundred pre-K through grade seven students each and every year. Now, if, if you heard me when I uh, just talked about the opening of the school, um, we opened the school February 2020. Now you all know what happened in March 2020. It happened there just like it happened here. Everything shut down. And uh, uh, incredibly, schools have not reopened yet for children on these grade levels yet in Uganda. And I would love to tell you, I don't have time to tell you about the resilience of our team on the ground there. They didn't just shrug their shoulders and say, well, there's nothing we can do. The government closed schools. They have found ways to uh, maintain the continuity of our children's education outdoors uh, during the interim. Ask me questions about it afterwards if you're interested. It's, it's a beautiful story. Um, but what we're able to provide through this school now is really transformational in the lives of our children. These are children who likely would have been sitting in a classroom with 100 other students and maybe a few textbooks to share uh, for their education. But now they will be in a well-equipped classroom with well-equipped instructors. Um, and this is... A, 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 a service that we can provide to a severely underserved community uh, where it also gives us a Monday through Friday context where we have the opportunity to invest in their lives and share the gospel and and shape their spiritual development and their godly character as well from a young age. Well, we have, uh, I asked Rosabella, our head teacher in Uganda at the school, to give us, um, that's the wrong it's three fingers, right guys? You get, you're amazing. You trained me well. Um, this is Rosabella, our head teacher there in Western Uganda, and we asked her to tell you a little bit about the official opening of the school last February. And uh, the video also gives you a little bit of an overview of the campus as we've developed it. You're welcome to Hope Community Primary School. I'm called Sabit Rosabella the head teacher of this school. My purpose here is uh, to direct my staff on what they are supposed to do and be in the vision of the school. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy world. I'm in a crazy world, I'm in a crazy i am a in Thank you so much for loving us, for supporting us and supporting our children. Well, a couple of years ago, one of our newsletters featured the story of a young man named Alex Karuhanga, a young man from this very Kibora region. Um, When we first met Alex in 2008, uh, his mother was also HIV-positive and and struggling uh, intensely in her health, Uh, and so we immediately brought uh, him into the program and and connected her to the treatment that she needed. Um, Alex's mother immediately began receiving antiretroviral therapy for her disease, and she quickly rebounded in her health. Um, And yet, despite All these new opportunities that were uh, provided to Alex through the program, he really struggled in his heart in those years. He frequently skipped school. He was known for being disrespectful to his teachers. Um, By 2012, he was nearly expelled from his secondary school um, due to his disciplinary record. But his mother did not give up on him. The team on the ground there did not give up on him. Uh, And the following year, the Lord opened Alex's heart to the gospel. Um, he immediately joined a discipleship group offered by Moses Nkwatsibwe there in our partner church, and uh, the, the good fruit of the gospel in Alex's life immediately became evident. Um, by the end of 2013, he had transformed into one of the most disciplined and trustworthy students of the school. In fact, he was appointed the, the role of head boy, um, if you're familiar at all with the inheritance of the, the British school system uh, or a school called Hogwarts, uh, you might have heard of head boy and head girl. These are, like, uh, these are um, uh, positions given to the most exemplary student leaders. So a year after he's almost expelled, he's the head boy of the school. And he even went on a mission trip that uh, the church took to the eastern part of the country to share the gospel with young people his age. Um, this is what Alex says now, looking back on that time in his life. He says, quote, this is just an abridged uh, testimony that Alex wrote. My life changed when I got saved in 2013 and was introduced to the gospel and discipleship. Jesus humbled me, and now I value my life and the support I receive from Covenant Mercies, which is by grace. My mother also receives HIV care through Covenant Mercies and she's very healthy and strong. I'm so grateful to God for changing my life and favoring me and to Covenant Mercies for extending the helping hand of God to me. I will never be the same again. Oh, I forgot to show you. This is Alex today. Um, Well, amen. Amen. A year later, Alex uh, graduated from a technical institute where he was learning plumbing skills. He even applied those skills on the campus of Hope Community Primary School, helped us to develop our water system there. Um, And he's currently working toward a diploma in water engineering as well. Well, Alex is just one example of the, uh, the impact that we can have through sponsoring kids. Um, as a sponsor, your generosity really pours directly into the life of the child, providing education and health care, uh, and, and more, even more so, setting in motion The ministry of our local church partners there on the ground in his home area, the personal care and discipleship that's offered through those partner churches, all begins with a sponsor's gracious decision to give in order to see his life transformed. Um, When I share the the exciting news, I want to turn the the corner back toward uh, Zambia again. Uh, When I shared the exciting news earlier about the the launch of a new school in Uganda, uh, those of you who are familiar with Covenant Mercies and familiar with the Chandas would have have heard how similar that is to the work we've been doing with the Chandas there in Ndola, Zambia for 15 years now. Uh, What we were looking to do through Hope Community Primary School really is to follow, to replicate the model uh, that we've established through uh, our partnership with Lighthouse Christian School. In Zambia. Uh, we, began, we began partnering with Lighthouse in 2006, um, sponsoring one classroom of kindergarten students at that time, and we are now serving over 300 sponsored children in grades pre-K through grade 7. Um, in this past year, Uh, We have been, uh, we we embraced a really ambitious new project at Lighthouse. In fact, it's been more than a year. Uh, The loss of Wilbrot in the midst of this has certainly been a setback for this project, but... uh It is even more meaningful uh, that Wilbrod's fingerprints are all over this design, um, and he was actively engaged in the process of of working with those construction uh, managers to bring this building to fruition. So our team on the ground there, if anything, is more inspired to see this through to fruition. And uh, we are getting closer. This is the new building at Lighthouse that, Lord willing, will be opening in the next few months. Um, this this building uh, will include a spacious assembly hall. You can see it right there, that, that vaulted ceiling in the middle, that, that green roof uh, will be this spacious assembly hall, which will enable us to gather the children for all kinds of educational purposes in there as well. Um, it is actually cleaned up every weekend right now to serve as the... Um, As the the home of of Christ Community Church, they lost their opportunity to rent at a school where they were renting during the COVID period, and so Lighthouse has opened the doors to Christ Community Church uh, for their Sunday meetings there. Um, We have decided as a Lighthouse school board to name this hall, Wilbrod Chanda Hall, in his honor. And... um, Gonna make it hard for me to tell you anything else about this building. Um, you can see some of those doorways on the side. That, the, that will uh, get you entrance into the new school library when it's finished. There will be a science lab, there will be a computer lab, uh, there will be uh, additional classroom space that Lord willing will enable us to add grades eight and nine in the coming years as well. So the Lord has really provided uh, through these dear partners in in, uh, Zambia as we work to establish further Lighthouse Christian School. Uh, Just as I work toward a conclusion here, I I don't want you to, to get the idea that what we're most excited about is buildings and infrastructure and beautiful school campuses. All of these are a means toward an end. All of these are investments into the lives of uh, young children who are developing into young people who will become everything that God has created them to be. We really encourage the children to develop their gifts and learn uh, how God has gifted them and then, and then understand their responsibility to cultivate those gifts through their education. A great example of this uh, is a young man named Michael Nkata. Uh, Michael, you're looking at a photo of Michael circa 2008 when he was first enrolled in our sponsorship program. He had lost both parents and had been taken in by an aunt. And Michael uh, started at Lighthouse Christian School in grade two, graduated from there. Uh, He graduated from grade 12 a couple of years ago and achieved a 75% government scholarship to go to the University of Zambia as a pre-med student. Um, Some of you who are familiar with our Organization will know our Mapalo Scholarship Fund for higher education is also available to sponsorship grads. We've been building a scholarship fund so that when uh, they graduate from the sponsorship program, those who are eligible can, can apply to be able to go on for higher ed studies. So through the Mapalo Scholarship Fund, we are happily providing the other 25% that Michael will need to get a full ride and go to the University of Zambia as a, as a, a full-time pre-med student. Uh, this is Michael today, and uh, as I read, uh, th- this, this is just one excerpt from Michael's Mapalo scholarship application, uh, where he described not only his desire to be a doctor, but his desire to serve the underserved as a doctor uh, in the following way. He said, quote, being an orphan and being raised in a community of people with low social status has made me want to study hard and be one person who came from such a background and still made it in life, and be able to give hope to other people where hope has died. And I remember when I read that, it just occurred to me that, that that is a hope, that is a dream that Michael can pursue today because somebody gave him hope where hope might have died. And what a beautiful application of the biblical compassion that we were reflecting on earlier in this, in this message Um, to see our children be able to pursue their dreams in this way and to be able to serve even their own communities ultimately as disciples of Christ and those who are are wanting to be an influence of the love of Christ in their home areas. Um, There are just a few ways that you might want to consider getting involved in Covenant Mercies. I don't pretend um, that the only application of this word today is Covenant Mercies. I hope that the Holy Spirit will be applying that word broadly to all of our hearts. Um, But let me give you a few on-ramps to consider in Covenant Mercies if you would like. Um, your sponsorship of children uh, mobilizes partners like Moses and Khoatsibwe, like the Chandas in Zambia and their teams on the ground uh, to, to set this care and this uh, discipleship in motion on behalf of your child. Your investment into the schools that we're developing provides our children with quality education in a Monday through Friday Christ-centered context uh, where we can maximize our influence in their lives for the gospel. Um, Years down the road after we invest in their early education like that, we expect more and more of them will be able to achieve a high in their education uh, efforts and they'll be able to go on for higher ed studies, and that's why we're building that Mapalo Scholarship Fund today in preparation for that day. And in the end, we trust that these young people will graduate and they'll take their place in society as as young people uh, who who are able to be influencers in their families, in their churches, in their communities for the glory of God and will produce ripple effects that we will only fully understand in eternity. We have a table set up over here. Joanne Burak, who is a Covenant Mercies lifer, um, is going to be joining me over there. We're happy to answer any of your questions that you may have. There are profiles of, of children who are awaiting sponsors, and if you're interested in considering that, I'd love to answer any questions that you may have about it. But listen, regardless of whether you decide to join hands directly with Covenant Mercies today, may we all be and may we all grow in being compassionate disciples who embrace cost and risk and take action uh, on behalf of others in order to extend the love of Christ to the lost in our world, just as Christ has taken initiative toward us and embraced the greatest cost to make us His own. Amen.